Greetings from Quail Lakes Baptist Church in Stockton, California. Thank you for your interest in our downloadable messages. Our more recent teachings, such as Pastor Mark's current sermon series, are always available on iTunes. However, for a more comprehensive offering of Quail's Bible-based teachings from Pastor Mark and others, we offer an extensive archive of downloadable sermon MP3s on our website, as well as information on our fellowship and our ministries. Please visit us online at www.qlbc.org. These messages are also available on CD or cassette. For more information, please call our church office at 209-951-7380. We trust you will be blessed and edified by what you are about to hear. Thank you for listening. Take your Bibles, please, and turn to the Old Testament book of Joshua, chapter 20. That's where we are today, Joshua, chapter 20. We're in this series called Promised Land Living, how to live that promised land life that God calls us to. We see this in the book of Joshua. And today, here's the key concept. God is for true justice, for true justice. Today, we're going to learn a little bit of history. I'll tell you take you back to a little bit of a history lesson and I, then I hope bring it forward and wrap it together as we see how it applies to us. But in the passage we're going to come to, we're, we're going to see in history how God worked so that his people would establish a system of justice and pull away from the human tendency simply to take revenge when bad things happen. Sometimes a, a bad result comes from A pure accident, something we didn't plan, something we didn't think about ahead of time, but people are not perfect, something happens, and there's a tragedy as a result. And usually when that happens, there is a human tendency to want to get even, and that's what God is working against here. That human tendency starts very young. Keith Todd writes about a seven-year-old boy and his two-year-old sister. They were playing in their playroom. Mom was down the hall when all of a sudden mom heard this blood-curdling scream. She came running into the playroom and there the two-year-old had clumps of the seven-year-old's hair in her hand, was pulling on the hair. And that seven-year-old was sobbing, was yelling in pain, and mom came over and very tenderly released the grip of that two-year-old, very gently spoke to the seven-year-old about how the fact that she doesn't mean anything by it. She doesn't understand what's, what's happening. Probably she doesn't even know that it hurts you when she does that. And between his sobs, he's shaking his head. Yes, he understands. And so finally he got the, the hands separated from the hair. She got the hands separated from the hair and, and she left the room. And all of a sudden she heard a blood-curdling scream from the two-year-old. Runs back in. And the seven-year-old looks up. She knows now. That's vengeance. That's vengeance. And that's just maybe a little picture of vengeance. But there are large acts of vengeance happening in our world today. Responding in revenge. A bomber does something over here. A killer in response kills over here. There's violence over here and retribution for that. It's ongoing and it's cyclical and it's happening all around us. But God has a solution for that. And the solution is justice mixed with mercy. 
So let's review where we are. Last week we saw how the Promised Land was divided among the tribes and they got various territories, assigned areas that they, that they went to live in. Now what we need to understand is that Joshua, as he's making these decisions, is following a script. And the script was written, revealed, I should say, through Moses, revealed by God through Moses. And, and part of that script that they're meant to follow now as they establish themselves living in the land is a rudimentary system of government. A rudimentary system of regional courts in the, held by the elders in the various cities. And the question becomes, how do we make decisions to run a society? And so you know, they're making decisions on all kinds of levels, but one of the decisions is, what happens when there's a, a capital offense? How will we handle it when one person kills another person? If it's murder, the way is clear. Exodus chapter 21 says this, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, and bruise for bruise. That's the law that we call the lex talionis. It's the law of retribution. Now there are many in our society today who look back at that verse, the law of retribution, and they say, surely this is a primitive call for bloodshed. Surely this is a violent kind of uh, a principle established by a bloodthirsty religious system. But in reality, it's the exact opposite of that. The exact opposite. Because what's happening here is this. Actually, God is giving his people a limiting factor in, a, in the culture. God is saying, listen, justice is proportional. And that is a new thought in this moment in history. Because up until this point, the common practice outside of the people of God, justice was non-proportional. It was a non-proportional response. You hurt me, I'm going to kill you. You kill one of my tribe, we're going to come back and kill ten. You disrespect me, I'm coming back with disaster. That was the way it went. And in that, it was causing a never, an ever-increasing escalation of violence, growing bigger and bigger, bigger as each thing is done in response to the other. But along comes the Word of God, and God says, listen, you have to have a just response. It needs to be a proportional response. Your response must be limited to what is called for by justice. And in the case of murder, the intentional taking of a life the response is capital punishment. Numbers 35. Bloodshed pollutes the land. Atonement cannot be made for the land on which blood has been shed except by the blood of the one who shed it. Do not defile the land where you live and where I dwell, for I, the Lord, dwell among the Israelites. There's a few important thoughts here. The one is the value of the innocent human life. The shedding of blood, of the innocence, the taking of life is a punishment because that life is so valuable. And if you do not properly enact justice and punishment, you are defiling the land where God lives. In other words, this breach of justice sets up some kind of hindrance in the fellowship that God wants to have with his people. All that is there. But what about when it's an accident? That's the issue today. What about when it's not murder, it's not premeditated, we didn't mean for this to happen, it's a tragic accident and accidents happen, you know? 
Instead, what's going to happen? Should the family of the, the victim now retaliate in kind against the, the person who caused this accident to happen? All that would do is set up a blood feud that would go on for on and on. But God, you see, has justice with mercy in mind. And so Joshua 20, verse 1, read with me, says this. Then the Lord said to Joshua, tell the Israelites to designate the cities of refuge as I instructed you through Moses so that anyone who kills a person accidentally and unintentionally may flee there and find protection from the avenger of blood. God puts in a system that avoids ongoing feuds. Revenge is something he does not want his people to engage in. Now, when we talk about feuds, the first thing that comes to mind, for some of us, I'm sure, is the Hatfields and the McCoys. You remember these two families who feuded? I don't know if you realize that. That's actually a true story. There really were Hatfields and McCoys. They lived in West Virginia and Kentucky. They had a feud that lasted 125 years. It started in 1878. Randolph McCoy was accused of stealing a hog from the Hatfields, and the two families basically went to war. And the war, over the period of time that it lasted, 125 years, 11 people were killed between these two families. And on June 14, 2003, 60 descendants of those families came together with the governor of Kentucky and the governor of West Virginia, and they signed a peace agreement. Finally, all of that, 125 years, 11 people dead over a pig. Feuds. Feuds happen. And Moses directed the Israelites to enact a justice system that avoided this. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses established the three cities of refuge on the eastern side of the Jordan. That's the, the portion of the land that was settled first. And here in our passage, Joshua is setting up the cities of refuge on the western side of the Jordan. Now here's a small but very important point that we need to see. And that is this, Joshua and the people around him were aware of and they were using the books of Moses as their inspirational guides. Already, right here in the very beginning of the nation, they're looking to the, to the books of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, reading those books and deriving from them the way that they should live. They are already people of the book. And they established the cities of refuge and that what we're talking about here is people finding refuge. The refugee could flee there after they commit what we would call in our parlance today, we would call it manslaughter, an accidental taking of a life. And these cities were set up both on the eastern side of the Jordan and the western side of the Jordan. They were accessible. They were nearby so people could flee to them, three cities on each side. And I want you to see that this was provided by God. This is God's idea. His act of mercy. He knew that this would be an issue. He knew that it would be a struggle. So he's the one who took the initiative and said to Moses, and here, Joshua, you, you must set up these cities so that you can show mercy and you can step, up, step away from your baser instincts of revenge. They are also a manifestation of God's grace. God didn't have to do this. These people that are able to flee to safety in these cities, they're not perfect people. There are probably things they did in their life that were intentionally wrong. But nonetheless, grace prompts God to take the initiative and provide a place of safety. Grace causes God to want to help even these people 
who are struggling through a tragedy. And thirdly, I want you to see that these places had the power to secure the one who came. While they stayed within these cities, they were safe. They were able to go on with their life. I wonder what it must have been like to be on the run. Maybe some accident happens or, or something, and, and someone died. And as a result of that, the family is all riled up against you. Can you imagine yourself fleeing for your life and there's some sort of posse chasing after you? And they won't listen to reason. They won't listen to your excuses. They won't listen to, to how this has happened. All they want is revenge. But when you enter through the gate of the city of refuge, you know you are safe. And there you will be taken care of, safe and secure. I'm able to start anew because I have refuge. Now, these, these cities, like I said, were, were located both east and west of the Jordan River. If you read the, the, the locations and compare it to a map, you'll see that they're in the north, in the middle, and in the south. In other words, they had to be accessible. They had to be able to be reached by people at a moment's notice. They weren't way out in the wilderness where nobody could get to it. Fairly easy to respond. And we learn something else about these cities in chapter 21. We learn that they are Levitical cities. Let's go back to last week. Remember I told you last week that the tribes were allotted certain uh, plots of land as they divided up the nation Israel. But the Levite tribe, they were not given any land. They were the tribe of priests. They were depend on the sacrifices and the, the, the system uh, for their own you know, uh, food and well-being and so forth. They didn't have big tracts of land that they populated. But within all of the nation of the land of uh, Israel, there were cities that were designated as Levitical cities. These were cities that were primarily populated by the Levites. They had to live somewhere. They couldn't all live in in Jerusalem, uh, although they went there to perform their priestly duties, but they were scattered through the land that certain cities were primarily Levitical cities. And what it did was it put all through the countryside the presence of, uh, of this priestly class able to bring God's word and interpret God's word and be a part of the system of governance all throughout the land. And particularly these Levitical cities were the ones that were designated the cities of refuge, just six of them that they could flee to. So it put the Levites in the position of having a lot to do with deciding whether or not this person was a a legitimate refugee or not. And there is a system that we'll notice in a moment uh, in these Levitical, uh, Levitical cities. They were centrally located, and they had tribunals. And because it, was, it had to have a system, it wasn't as simple as just showing up and declaring yourself a refugee. If that's all it was, then that would be easily manipulated by true murderers, wouldn't it? And so they had to have a system of evaluation. Let's read on. It's described starting in verse 4. It says, when he flees to one of these cities, he's to stand at the entrance of the city gate and state his case before the elders of that city. Then they are to admit him into their city and give him a place to live with them. If the avenger of blood uh, pursues him, they must not surrender the one accused because he killed his neighbor unintentionally and without malice or forethought. He is to stay in that city until he has stood trial before the assembly and until the death of the high priest who is serving at the time. Then he may go back to his own home in the town from which he fled. 
And so we, we, we see a, a system there. It's not completely explained to us in terms of the details of the system because the readers would have understood the details. The first readers of Joshua would have known the details right away. But we get a glimpse for the fact that there was a decision-making body and, and the, the, the author says it happened at the gate. Now, that's confusing for us because when we Westerners hear the word gate, we think of a door something swinging on a hinge. But that's not what the gate, the ancient gate was. In the ancient cities, the gate in the protective wall was actually a series of rooms. It was a complex of rooms. And as you entered through the, the entranceway, there was a room that was the barracks of the soldiers. And there was a storeroom. And there was a, uh, a meeting room, a decision-making room, where the elders of the city would gather together to make all kinds of decisions, but here we see in this particular situation make the decisions regarding the, the refugee and his status. All of that happened at the gate. It was kind of a combination of you know police headquarters and town hall right at the gate. And when you think about it, why would they do that? It's for security reasons. It's not like we let people in, they're wandering all around the town, and they get a ticket, and then one day they've got to show up at town hall in the middle of the town. Meanwhile, they're wandering our streets this whole time. No, you don't even get in unless you pass, uh, pass muster. And so right at the gate, these things are decided. And if they were able to uh, prove that they were genuinely a refugee under this statute, they could enter the town and be safe there. And so they come to the gate. And, uh, and I want you to see that this process was open not only to the Israelites, but to all who lived in the land. Look at verse 9. Any of the Israelites or any alien living among them who killed someone accidentally could flee to these designated cities and not be killed by the avenger of blood prior to standing trial before the assembly. It's for all those. It's equal protection for everyone who has said, I want to be a part of what God is doing here. I'm a worshiper of the one true God. I want to be a part of the nation. Even if they're grafted in. I'm, I'm reminded that our hero from last week, the guy that we were talking about, Caleb, he was not an Israelite. He, he was grafted in. He said, I want to be a part of what God is doing with these people. And all of this was open to those, those aliens as well. And they would stay in the city of refuge until the death of the high priest. Again, why that? What, what is that? It says two things. It says, number one, we recognize that this is temporary. You're not forever consigned to this city. It's not a life sentence. And number two, uh, the death of the high priest was considered the end of an era. A new thing is happening in the land, and so things become new again. These are the details that we see. And when we look back like that, it's a fascinating little glimpse of of history and how God's people were starting to get organized in the land. But what I want you to see today is that these details parallel what we have in our refuge. And our refuge comes from the Christ that we celebrated in communion today. Here are the details. Here's the parallel. Our refuge through Christ is provided by God. He initiates John 6, says this, No one can come to me unless the Father has sent me, draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. God draws people to himself. And how does he draw people to himself to come to him in salvation? He does that through the ministry of the Holy Spirit who convicts us of our need for forgiveness as we hear the gospel message. 
Jesus is speaking when he says in John 16, verse 8, when he comes, talking about the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. That's the threefold convicting work of the Holy Spirit. Anyone who says yes to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, that has worked on our hearts. It's, it's conviction of guilt regarding our sin, the possibility of righteousness, and the certainty of judgment if I don't get right with God. That happens to everyone who says yes to Jesus Christ. It may, may take a long time, and it may take an instant, but it's the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, and he draws us to himself, and we have to respond to that, don't we? We have to say yes to that, just like the refugee. If he decided, well, I'm going to make it, I'm going to go my own way, I'm not going to go into the city, I'm just going to take my chances, chances are things wouldn't work out. But when we say yes to our refuge and hope in Jesus, God is drawing us to himself. Secondly, just like these cities, our refuge is a manifestation of grace. It's all of grace, Ephesians 2.8, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. All of this is a gracious gift. And just like this refuge, Jesus, our refuge, has the power to save and the power to keep us secure in him. Once that refugee was in the city, he couldn't be touched. He could have confidence that I'm safe and I'm secure here. And it's the same for you in your spiritual salvation with Jesus Christ. John 10, Jesus is speaking again. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. You are held fast in the grip of grace if you know Christ as personal Savior. And that grip will never slacken. You are safe in Him. God never loses His power to keep us and to hold us secure. So we see in this system that's established in the ancient government of Israel, there's a parallel to what we have in Jesus Christ. And it makes sense, doesn't it? Because all of this is God's idea. And he is eternally consistent, always working for our blessing. His grace and mercy has always been there, and it will remain there for you because he never changes. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that even in this bit of a historical detail, we see a glimpse of the way you have always been merciful, you've always been gracious. You've always cared for your people. And Lord, you do still today. Thank you for your care for us. Lord, we ask that you enable us to see the way you're working in each of our lives so that we can follow. We pray, Lord, that you would shower us with grace. We know we don't deserve it. But Lord, where we have failed, we pray that we pick ourselves up and turn to you in forgiveness. Make us a repentant people. Make us a a forgiven people and a forgiving people as we pass on your heart of mercy and love. Help us live like that, we pray. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In just a moment, we're going to leave this place and go our separate ways. But I want to remind you that always we have prayer counselors next to the organ. They're waiting to pray for you and you can slip forward. So let's stand together. And before we go, we're going to sing a song. Okay? I have a song in mind. It's Jesus' name above all names. You remember that song? Here's how it goes. Sing loud if you know it. Jesus, name above all names, beautiful Savior, glorious Lord, Emmanuel, 
God is with us, blessed Redeemer, living word. Let's do that once again, singing. Jesus, name above all names, beautiful Savior, glorious Lord, Emmanuel, God is with us, blessed Redeemer, living we thank you for the opportunity to know and be reminded once again that you are our redeemer and we are the redeemed. We have been bought with a price out of sin and into freedom. Lord, help us to live as your free and loving people, we pray. Watch over us. We ask it as we go. Bless us in this week ahead and we'll give you glory in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for coming today.